This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out your own, always alone, wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell. Wishing to hell Someone was listening Someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on And someone to trust Who needs your assistance And finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast I'm Ayana Young this show is listener-supported. Please visit forthewild.world to make a donation. This episode is in collaboration with the Bioneers Conference, which is being held in Marin County on the weekend of October 20th. I have the pleasure of speaking there this year, along with some of the most incredible thought leaders of our time. I hope to see you there. Today we are speaking with Jody Holmes. Jody is a PhD project director for the Rainforest Solutions Project, a coalition of Greenpeace, Sierra Club of BC, and Stand.org. She has dedicated 20 plus years to achieving healthy human and ecological systems in the Great Bear Rainforest, and was one of the primary architects of the historic Great Bear Rainforest Agreements, protecting the largest expanses of old growth temperate rainforest in the world. Well, thank you so much, Jody, for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to start off by saying that the temperate rainforest of Cascadia are deeply embedded in my heart. And, you know, just as you have, I'm honored to dedicate my life to their protection and restoration. And the work that you've been fundamental in for more than two decades in the Great Bear Rainforest has been a compass and an inspiration for my work with what I do here in the redwoods of Southern Cascadia as well as in the campaign that For the Wild is a part of with Earth Justice and other organizations and working to stop old growth logging in the Tongass National Forest of Southeast Alaska. You know the reality of how much old growth we have already lost, which never ceases to fill me with longing. You know, forests that took thousands upon thousands of years to reach the ancient state, harboring incalculable wisdom and biological diversity, and they've been almost completely obliterated in just a few hundred years since colonialization. Here in the contiguous United States, intact temperate rainforests cover less than 5% of their historic range. And for many people, it's unfathomable what true old growth really looks or feels like. You know, to be amongst the thousand-year-old western red cedars that remain in isolated stretches of forest on the north coast of BC or just to witness watersheds teeming with salmon as grizzlies and wolves celebrate their return. And although the rainforests of BC have not completely escaped the thralls of destruction, much more temperate rainforest remains in BC devoid of human development than anywhere else. The Great Bear Rainforest specifically harbors one quarter of the world's unlogged coastal temperate rainforest. It stores immense amounts of carbon. Uh, it sustains 20% of the world's wild salmon, 2,000 genetically distinct runs. 
and it encompasses a, one of the most pristine marine ecosystems on the planet. So the ecological and cultural significance of the Great Bear Rainforest is manifold, but to journey past the scientific and definable significance, I'd love if we could start with you giving our listeners a sense of what these forests feel like and what makes the Great Bear so special to you and everyone else who has spent decades rallying for its protection. Well, maybe the best place for me to start is kind of um, where and how I fell in love with the Great Bear Rainforest. And it, it actually started first from a map that I saw on the wall, which came from the Sierra Club of British Columbia. And it was one of those maps of uh, remaining temperate rainforest in the world. And they used yellow as the color for um, logged areas and green for everything else. And I remember looking at that map and noticing that um, Vancouver Island was basically obliterated. There was almost no green left on it, as was the lower mainland of British Columbia. And then as you started moving north, all of a sudden there was this area of green that stood out and was so much in contrast to the rest of the map that I got super curious and was like, what, what is that? Where is that? Subsequently, because I'd sort of really noticed the green area on the map and kind of fallen in love with the idea of the green area on the map, um, I went on a very long kayaking trip with my then husband and a couple of friends, and we kayaked from the northern part of the Great Bear Rainforest down into the center of the Great Bear Rainforest, which took us three and a half weeks. And in the course of that kayaking trip, we spent an, uh, just a lot of time either sitting on beaches or wandering in old growth forests where the first thing that you notice and the kind of the first thing that hits you is the smell. And the smell is that of deep, wet moss, um, of green all around you, of the ocean kind of lapping at your, at your uh, beachfront. And in the course of doing that, we also really met a lot of First Nations in their communities. And this was before there was a lot of kayaking activity and tourism activity in the area. So First Nations were incredibly friendly and I would have to say kind of tourist naive at the time, and told us all kinds of things about places that had been important to them culturally and historically, and sent us off looking for things, which honestly today they would never do, um, because they're trying to make sure that those areas get conserved and that tourists aren't running roughshod all over them. Uh, but one of the places that I will never forget is an area that was called the Stadium. And it's found kind of almost dead center in the Great Bear Rainforest. It's found on a on a little isthmus, um, which has three kind of crescent moon beaches that sit around on, the, on the, the isthmus that are all white sand beaches. And in the little section of the isthmus, when you walk into the forest, there's this deep pit which has steps on it. And that's all that's left of what used to be a gathering place for First Nations up and down the coast. And it's just these mossy steps with some really big, big logs that have fallen down that used to be the roof logs. And I remember stepping kind of into the undergrowth and we'd been looking for it for probably six or seven hours at that point and stepping into the undergrowth and noticing that <laughs> there was this pit and then thinking, oh my gosh, look, those logs aren't just random. Those logs are actually roof poles. And sitting there and realizing that for thousands of years, First Nations had been coming to this place, had been meeting, had been making decisions about marine use and allocation of resources and setting up marriages and learning songs from each other and establishing kind of territorial boundaries and things like that. And there he was sitting in the middle of it and all that was left were just these mossy steps and some big roofing logs. And there was something about that experience of being in the middle of the Great Bear Rainforest and not having seen a lot of other people or been engaged in kind of Western colonial culture for some period of time that I found incredibly moving and also just it stopped me in my tracks. And in that moment, what happened for me was this intense certainty and commitment to both wanting to look after the rainforest and make sure that the rainforest itself didn't go away, but also really wanting to be engaged in and support First Nations in a revival of their relationship with land, 
um, in an economic revival and also in a revival of their traditional laws and cultures. So that was kind of my pivotal moment where I had an experience going into the Great Bear Rainforest kind of unexpectedly stumbling on something that was really powerful and ancient, which completely changed my life and really caused me to turn my direction to looking after and, and working on Great Bear Rainforest um, for the next 20 years. I'm going to come back and then say to you a little more about the what's it like to be in the Great Bear Rainforest, because I've had many trips back since then. And in those trips back since then, some of the things that have absolutely blown my mind are in the Kauai River estuary and then walking up the river, you come upon these grizzly bear footprints in the moss. And they're literally kind of the size of dinner plates. And they're deep down into the moss. And they're actually like a grizzly bear highway where grizzly bears walk over and over. And so the moss never recovers. And there's just these deep indentations in the moss because grizzlies go up and down that valley um, to catch salmon. I've sat in a little boat in an estuary watching grizzly bears literally 20 or 30 feet away from me, rubbing their backs and shoulders on logs, jumping down into the water, sitting in the water, scratching their heads, and then just kind of nonchalantly picking up salmon from in the water. They just stick their head into the water, pick up a salmon, pull it back up again, and then just crunch, 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 crunch right in front of me. I've watched rainforest wolves uh, cavorting on beaches where they don't think that you can see them because they're incredibly shy. They're really unusual. They actually spend their time uh, mostly on the beach. They're probably a, a subspecies. And they eat a lot of crabs. They do a lot of picking up rocks and reaching under rocks to grab for crabs. And they eat salmon, which is unusual relative to other wolf species. And then there's just the experience of walking into estuarine areas where Grizzly bears kind of are rooting around and you see the results of grizzly bears rooting around in the sedges in the springtime where they've just turned over huge amounts of soil looking for the sweet roots of the sedges. And then the other things that kind of were unforgettable are standing at the base of a really big Sitka spruce tree and looking up and kind of like realizing, oh my gosh, this thing's been here for a thousand years. And it goes up as far as I can see and then it disappears into the sky and it's covered with moss and it's so integrally a part of this ecosystem and connected under the ground with its roots to everything else and it's been a home for something and it's been fed by the salmon that come up the streams and it kind of just again it's just one of those moments where you realize I'm right in the presence of utter connection and um, beauty and then the final thing I'll mention is, and I think you've already talked about it, the, the Great Bear Rainforest comes down and, and meets at the intersect with the Pacific Ocean. And there's an incredible amount of biodiversity in the ocean as well. And so often when you're traveling around the Great Bear Rainforest, you're doing it by boat. There are almost no roads. So you spend most of your time in boats and then coming into little estuaries and then walking up into the forest. And while you're out on the boats, you are very likely to see pods of killer whales with babies cavorting in the shallows and feeding. And at some point we were in kayaks out in a little bay and about four or five humpback whales came and surrounded us. This was just after the Great Bear Rainforest Agreements had been signed. And this group of humpback whales came and surrounded us and kept coming up in the most incredibly gentle way and spraying great fishy breath all over us. And I just kept having this sense of, it was like the Great Bear Rainforest and the ocean were sort of putting on this show for us and saying, it was such a good thing you did. It was so good that you looked after this area because look what you've protected. Take me through the pine forest and over the mountains right up to the shore of the sea. And there in the evening we'll board that same vessel that's bound for adventure and me. Though the journey I long to be easy, I know in my heart's not to be. For the danger unfolding enticed me to wake up my bones from their sleep. 
As ecological awareness begins to permeate the mainstream, the Great Bear and Tongass are now widely recognized as unmatched treasures of the natural world. But prior to the 1990s, this region was kind of a blind spot in the public eye, which logging companies were fine with. You know, there were resistance efforts all along, but they had limited leverage to challenge the industry which was the crux of BC's economy and the darling of the government. But somehow the word got out, and just like Occupy Wall Street and Standing Rock, the chemistry was ripe for this movement to just explode, and the demand was the end to unchecked old-growth logging in BC. This beautiful, unified display of resistance has become sort of legendary and is known to history as the War of the Woods. And I know that you were there. So how did it all go down? And in terms of strategy, what was discovered about how to successfully slow, and in many cases, stop the murder of a forest? Well, you know what? It is actually really helpful and instructive to start on Vancouver Island with Clackwood Sound. And also just to give you some context, so Clackwood Sound is quite small. Relatively speaking, there are hundreds of Clackwood Sounds in the Great Bear Rainforest. Um, It's a small area with a small number of watersheds. However, it captured Canadian attention because there were these huge, huge old growth trees that were being logged by Macmillan Bloedel. And for the first time in Canadian history, and it became the largest civil disobedience in Canadian history, people stood on the roads, linking arms, singing songs and saying no more logging trucks will pass and that this was kind of like the first big civil disobedience blockade for logging in Canada of that size and it was grandmothers and small children and doctors and lawyers it really captivated the attention of a very broad range of Canadian society and as the types of tools were being fine-tuned in Clackwood Sound one of the things that was being fine-tuned there was markets campaigns which involved creating a lot of public attention, negative public attention of companies that were using ancient rainforest in their supply chain, unfurling banners. It's where the environmental community cut its teeth and really um, started to create much more sophisticated markets campaigns. So two things basically really affecting public branding for companies that were using ancient rainforest in their supply chain and then developing uh, purchasing policies for those same companies so that they would refuse to buy ancient rainforests and then putting a lot of pressure on the forest industry in British Columbia in particular. Um, So that strategy and that particular technique developed in uh, Clackwood Sound uh, in in the work that was done with Macmillan Bloedel. Those same groups who'd been involved in Clackwood Sound realized they had a strategy that was a whole lot more powerful than they'd ever had before in terms of environmental campaigning, using the power of the marketplace to shift forest industry behavior up until that point hadn't really been tried and certainly hadn't been able to be brought to scale. So when we started working in the Great Bear Rainforest, in the early days, and this is this is where things you know got interesting and a little more complicated. In the early days, um, the forest industry in the Great Bear Rainforest, many of the same players, Macmillan Bloedel was one of them, really was 
operating kind of under the radar. You've already mentioned how incredibly remote the area was. Very few people went and saw it. Very few people kind of did what we call the BCTV test, which is fly over an area, see the size of the clear cuts and get horrified. So they'd been operating with impunity. And the forest industry, I would say, by at that point in time, was also very much, from a power block kind of perspective, was very much in alliance with uh, the provincial government, which meant that they had a great deal of influence over public policy around forestry, had a great deal of influence in terms of the rate of stumpage that was applied, and were generally speaking, dictating how decisions were made on forestry. And I'm, I'm overstating this for effect. It's not completely true. And I have forest industry colleagues who would completely argue with me about that point. But generally speaking, I would say relative to where things are now, they had an enormous amount of power and ability to affect decision making. They also made enormous contributions to political campaigns. And generally speaking, were very allied with governments and decision makers. And in contrast, what I would say in those early days, First Nations and environmentalists, other than the fact that environmentalists had this interesting new tool for markets campaigning, had relatively little power and had very little ability to affect government decision making. As we turned our lens towards the Great Bear Rainforest and were looking at the forest industry, it was a behemoth. It wasn't just one company, it was many companies. And some of those companies kind of had a, a psychology of wanting to work well with their local counterparts and First Nations, and others of them were really, they were large companies, they were, they were often international companies uh, that could care less, frankly, about what they did other than ensuring that they turned a profit. And one of the first things that happened in the Great Bear Rainforest kind of announcing to the world that the environmental eye had shifted and had turned northwards into the Great Bear Rainforest was that there was a blockade in Newhawk territory in a place called Fog Creek, which was for the Newhawk, the place where their founding kind of mother had come down and had come down from the heavens to earth and then had given rise to the Newhawk peoples. And international forest products was moving through the valley and coming incredibly close to logging the area that for them was deeply spiritually significant. And they called upon Greenpeace and asked them to come and help them to please stop the logging in this area that was really important to them. And so you'll see on the internet, there's a wonderful cache of Google images of First Nations elders, Newhawk elders in full regalia standing on the blockade with Greenpeace and others and Forest Action Network trying to stop Interfor from logging this area. And they were successful in that particular case in stopping the logging. But the simple reality was, and this is what we had learned in Clackwood, that stopping the forest industry somewhere was useful for that immediate moment. But as soon as anybody's attention was turned, that they would go back because they had licenses that allowed them to continue logging there and they were actually required by law to continue to, to take out the amount of harvest level that they had committed to. And generally speaking, other than markets campaigning, what people had discovered was that even when people did land use planning and engaged in conversations about how to change behavior in the forest industry, very little actually changed on the ground. So that is when the environmentalists as a whole kind of got together and started asking the question, how do we take the kinds of strategies and practices that we used in Clackwood Sound and scale them up, is that even possible? And how do we create a solution that is much more comprehensive than just a valley by valley by valley fight, or even a Clackwood Sound by Clackwood Sound fight, but that lets us accomplish this all in one big comprehensive whole, rather than using up our very limited resources trying to fight things valley by valley by valley. And in the early days, there was still the valley by valley by valley fight, trying to keep them out of areas that were really important. But as the markets campaigns kind of gained traction, and I would say the war in the woods, in fact, continued from Clackwood Sound into the Great Bear Rainforest for, you know, a two or three year period of time, which often in our experience has been necessary to get the attention of the forest industry and to establish that you actually have power, that they want to talk to you and they want to make changes. So um, in 1998, the forest industry said, that's enough. We've had enough of this market campaign attention and these blockades and all of this bad press. Uh, we want to sit down with you guys and we want to talk about finding a solution. 
And that's when we did our first agreement in principle moratorium on logging. So we, we got a moratorium on logging in a hundred of the watersheds, intact watersheds on the coast. And from there shifted into a completely different set of dynamics related to working more in collaboration with the forest industry, working in collaboration with first nations and spending the next 20 years finding solutions to what I would describe as that age old activist dilemma which is really for me typified by that moment in Seattle when the wall came down in the WTO protests and it was like, so what do we do now? We've actually stopped them from doing it, but what we know is that's not enough. We actually have to find a solution and figure out what to do next. And um, we were naive and young and had no idea what we were doing at that particular moment in time, but we were brazen enough, and this is where naivete is actually an advantage. We were brazen enough to believe that we could do something and that we could figure it out. Um, so that's that's kind of the moment at which the forest industry started to lose its capacity to completely influence forest policy and lose its capacity to completely um, define decision-making. And environmentalists were able to shift into equalizing the playing field with this markets campaign. So you're hearing this kind of through my lens as a white colonial activist. I wanna kind of add into this um, another perspective, which is that First Nations had been for 50, 100 years been raising the flag and saying, it's not okay what's happening here. It's not like they hadn't, they, they didn't know and then and hadn't been having these problems for a very long time. They did. They hadn't had access to public kind of campaigns and public opinion. And they hadn't had access to a whole lot of financial resources in large part because Canadians have been engaged in a rather shadowy underground cultural genocide for an extended period of time here in Canada relative to First Nations. So First Nations had started in the last, I would say, kind of around the time that environmental groups were kind of shifting their attention northwards to the Great Bear Rainforest. First Nations had started running legal campaigns, and they were helped in that by several environmental groups. They'd started doing legal campaigns and running legal challenges against the federal government and the provincial government on the basis of the fact that there was unextinguished Aboriginal title. And when they started, the provincial government basically had just thrown all these cases out of court and said, no, that's you have no rights. You're, you have the right to be on a reserve and you'll be looked after by the federal government, but you have no other rights according to that. But the very interesting thing in British Columbia is that, in fact, there never were treaties negotiated for a very large portion of the province. And in, in everywhere in the Great Bear Rainforest, no treaties had been negotiated. So there were a number of very precedent-setting legal cases that happened in the late 1990s and early 2000s that established not only that First Nations actually had Aboriginal tenure, which constituted a, a competing claim on the land, but the provincial government was constitutionally required to consult with them about matters of harvest levels and how land use was done in their territories. So that entire set of legal challenges completely changed the landscape for the forest industry as well. So on the one hand, they've got people unfurling banners on their customers and setting up purchasing protocols through markets campaigns. On the other hand, there's these legal challenges going to court that say, you can't come and just cut in our territory and talk to the provincial government. Now you have to come and talk to us too. So it was creating this incredibly unstable business climate. And in that very unstable business climate, harvest rates suffered, profits suffered, forest industry executives were tied up in a whole bunch of conflict resolution and trying to sort out their brand. And they lost some of their power as the insider track uh, with the provincial government and began needing to find solutions that could deal with this business uncertainty and climate of conflict that they were in, what you already mentioned as the war in the woods. Choosing sides Choosing sides Man, I hate to be choosing Choosing sides But I'm choosing sides My side is the wild side Lord, I wish I didn't have to be choosing Choosing sides Increasing to 
I just want to extend a bow of gratitude to you and the entire initiative. The immensity of what you all accomplished is truly groundbreaking and so inspirational. And it clearly was not an easy feat from the independent scientific team, which is the Coast Information Team that conducted the most comprehensive analysis ever taken on globally significant temperate rainforest to the coalitions of industry, environmental groups, the First Nations. Uh, you know, it, it, what a collaborative process. And one thing that I think about when I'm imagining this collaboration is that sacrifice and compromise are inevitable when juggling so many values, particularly in an agreement regarding such a large piece of land. The logging industry and environmental groups probably both desire the intact and most productive valleys, places that harbor the oldest, biggest cultural sites and trees, you know, those are also most of the time the most profitable because it's the largest trees, it's high grading, that's the easiest to get to. So I'm wondering how did the individual coalitions within the GBR agreements grapple with uh, such compromise? And I guess I'm also wondering who has the final say, who has the right to decide? Um, okay, well, let's let's deal with this issue of competing overlapping values. You, you nailed it. I'm, I'm sure you have this experience where you come from as well. The big trees, the big salmon fishing areas, the places where First Nations have had cultural use are the most productive ecosystems, most of interest for ecological purposes, and obviously most of interest to the forest industry. So it became increasingly like this, trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. There was a very, very small sweet spot that we could all kind of agree on. 
and the process of getting there involved a lot of refining our underlying principles and values and agreeing that it was in fact important to all of us to come up with a solution that included both um, low risk to ecological integrity, but also a viable forest industry and um, much better living conditions and economics for First Nations. So it was the coming to that kind of, we called it the egg of well-being, right? The idea that you needed to look after every single one of those values, that you needed to keep everybody whole, and the recognition and understanding that we weren't willing to compromise while at the same time, we weren't willing to compromise on any of those individual values at the same time as understanding that we were, everybody was going to have to take some hits. So it was in large part workable because we had all of this kind of independent science from the Coast Information Team that had clearly identified risk thresholds. It, it identified the answer to how much is enough, ecologically speaking. And First Nations had gotten very clear about what they needed to see in order for uh, these agreements to work for them. And the forest companies, quite frankly, ended up having to be the ones that retooled their businesses and rethought how they went about doing business in order to be able to make this work at some level. So there were definitely compromises on the ecological side. Did we get every single valley that had the best possible values and the most fabulous big old trees? No, we did not. But what we did do and were really clear about in the negotiations was we were able to meet those thresholds of in order to be able to maintain low risk to ecological diversity, what we needed to be able to do was ensure that 70% of the natural levels of representative ecosystems were set aside. That's a pretty big number, right? But we had the forest industry on side. We'd been able to really kind of carve that agreement with them about the importance of those thresholds. And so when it came time to come up with solutions, we ended up kind of looking at things and going, well, yeah, I know we know you want to have that, but you can't hit 70% without that valley. So that valley's got to get set aside or you can't you can't hit 70% without that particular set of trees because you're, you're not going to be able to meet the requirements of the agreement. So spending a lot of time and building all of that leverage initially was really important in terms of setting the constraints around which the agreements got made. Yeah, I can only imagine the back and forth that had to happen to get a solution and just all of the intricacies. It's easy to say, well, of course we have to stop all industrial logging. But when you realize the predicament that remote resource-dependent communities face, lines begin to blur. There's always this kind of tension, the issue of immediate personal survival versus the survival of the forest on an evolutionary scale. It's definitely easier to make a more hard-line ecological argument that we have to curb this activity to avoid game over, but it's more of a challenge to show how a local economy can continue in the absence of clear-cut logging, be it by growing shellfish in the bays or edible mushrooms or understory medicinal plants or producing biochar even. The phrase ecosystem-based management, or EBM, appeared a lot, and it definitely has an old paradigm ring to it. But I assume that was the strategy, to make deep ecology palatable, or at least less threatening to human supremacists. Because at the end of the day, trees are standing that would otherwise be dead. So before our dear tree-sitters and monkey-wrenchers in the audience raise objections, think about it. That means less trees to defend by other means, and that is a multi-tactical approach. What were the arguments you made against large-scale logging for the well-being of the land and her First Nations? And how did they hold up in the actual negotiations? Such great questions. I'm going to see if I can answer this quickly. So I would say the primary difference between ecosystem-based management and kind of traditional logging uh, behavior is that the rate of cut of logging is an outcome of planning in ecosystem-based management, whereas it's usually an input in traditional logging. Traditional logging usually says, well, we want to get these many logs, so let's just go out and get them. And we don't think too much about what happens to the rest of the ecosystem while we're doing it. So in this case, we did 
a lot of planning that was geared towards meeting targets relative to salmon and representative ecosystems and red and blue listed plant communities and focal species habitat. We did a lot of planning relative to that that was all informed by science that had determined this question around how much is enough. So we did a lot of planning trying to ensure that we had as much of those values overlapping in individual places so we could minimize the overall impacts to the forest. And then what we did was we looked at what's the amount of uh, land base that's left over and how much logging can it support. We look at what we need to keep first and then we set logging rates. That's really the difference between ecosystem-based management and regular forestry. I think one of the interesting things here that often comes as a surprise to people is that, in fact, clear-cut logging is still allowed here. The difference is that we've established what's the, what's the minimum amount over a large regional landscape of representative protection that we need to have. And once we've managed to attain that, and this would, frankly, this was a part of the reason why this was appealing to the forest industry was that they didn't necessarily have to change practices so much as they had to change where and how much of the practices that they did. So there's a much smaller portion of the land base that gets logged. It's logged using quite traditional methods, although there are requirements for protection of salmon, there are requirements for set-asides for wildlife tree patches and things like that, which frankly are still quite a lot more conservative than most other regions in the world. But from the perspective of those of us looking at EBM, we think, oh, that's just so, that's so normal. But generally speaking, they can still use clear-cut logging practices in the remainder of those areas because it's such a small amount of the land base relative to the area that gets set aside. And then the other thing about ecosystem-based management in this case, in the way that we kind of envisaged it here, is that it has a very strong emphasis on First Nations involvement and participation in decision-making, creating dignity for the people who live in the area, and ensuring that economic returns come into the communities that actually live within the area rather than entirely leaving. And you already spoke about the idea of creating conservation economies and diversifying economies so that forestry and mining and industrial fishery weren't the only game in town anymore. There was a lot more emphasis on smaller scale sustainable enterprises in the region so that First Nations in particular didn't have to make decisions that were defined by a hierarchy of need that said, I, uh, we, we need to be able to feed our children and so therefore we have to go with the only industry in town. When I'm in the woods, I know what to call you now. When I'm in the woods, I know what to call you now. Hey, mama, woo. Maybe the mountains know what to call you now. Maybe the mountains know what to call you now. Hey, my, my, whoa. Hey, my, my, When I'm in a womb, I know what to call you now. And when a belly blooms, I know what to call you now. Hey, my, my, whoa. Hey, my, my, whoa. Oh. Well, I'd say, Marie, I know what to call you now. Swimming in the sea, I know what to call you now. Well, thank you for explaining those complexities in more detail. And I have one last question for you, although I probably have 30 more questions for you, but <laughs> which I'm sad about because it's just incredible the depth of understanding you have of how to bring people together and actually manifest solutions. You know, we just spend so much time discussing solutions and concepts of conservation and then contemplating how to stop oil extraction, envisioning what we're going to do when our systems begin to collapse. 
And although I think it's completely important to talk about it, talking about such things only goes so far. And while many in this realm of thought like to shy away from the nitty gritty, from the way things transpire when you are working within the system, you know, the story of the Great Bear shows us that it is possible to work within the system and that it can be done. It actually really needs to be done. But it's also difficult to contemplate that it took 20 years, not to say that it didn't need those 20 years, but when we're looking in the trajectory of the Anthropocene and biodiversity loss, it feels like we don't have those 20 years to safeguard the biodiversity, or 20 years into the future, more years to safeguard the biodiversity that is currently on the brink of extinction on our planet. You know, the oceans can't wait another 20 years if we want to safeguard what's left. Um, And the last tracts of tropical rainforest slotted to be logged can't wait. And I really want to ask you how we can take these lessons to other parts of our world that are in desperate need of our attention. One thing I consider is BC is relatively undeveloped and wealthy and peaceful, and First Nations people are acknowledged, you know, kind of, uh, and a lot of land is publicly owned. And also environmentalist groups have a strong sway. But I'm wondering... How does how do these solutions also translate to more tumultuous places? So it's a kind of a two-part question of what are the lessons we can take from Canada and the United States, but also how do we translate those lessons to places that don't have the same privileges that we do here? Um also an excellent question and one that I'm spending considerable amount of time contemplating right now. I think I would say first and foremost, the most important lesson from my perspective in the Great Bear is about power. And when we turn our thinking to anywhere else um, and think about trying to shift timelines and do this a whole lot faster, because I agree with you, we have to be able to do this a whole lot faster in other places. Really, the most important lesson is getting a very sophisticated analysis of power and systems and learning how to create kind of the Buckminster Fuller um, concept trim tabs, like finding ways to do low effort actions that can tip a lot of and, and leverage a lot of change. In our case, it was this markets campaign. Markets campaigns, it turned out, while they didn't actually have enormous impacts on um, the economics of the forest companies, tied up their their senior leadership for extended periods of time, and that was untenable for them. And so they wanted to come to the table and stop that from happening, even though we hadn't, in fact, shut them down or really had enormous impacts on them in terms of their economics. So I would say understanding who the power players are, who make decisions, who are influencing decisions, and finding ways that are efficient and trim tab to be able to affect them is a really important learning from here that we need to kind of transfer to other places. And what I will say right now is that I know a number of organizations who have done exactly that, who are taking a number of these learnings and are taking that power analysis and the markets campaign capacity and shifting it to other places where there are far less stable governments and a whole lot more problems. Because I think one of the lessons for us here has been that, in fact, we never really lobbied the government to do a whole lot of stuff. What we did was we put a lot of pressure on the forest industry who had access to the government. And in the course of that, what we were able to accomplish was a whole lot of change because of a strong player arguing for, we have to change this. We've got to do something so that you can give us a a certain business environment. So from a, a trim tab perspective, creating business uncertainty can be very powerful. I think creating circumstances where there's a lot of international public attention so that the kind of repressive practices that happen in many other places in the world don't go unnoticed, because let's not kid ourselves, there are places in the world where people are killed for doing this kind of work. We are incredibly privileged here. Um, And then I think the other thing to me that feels really, really important is these unusual collaborations, out of left fields, ways of, and you know, kind of like weird, quirky, unusual, creative ways of interacting with people who we would normally see as enemies and finding ways to come up with solutions that 
neither of us would have come up with individually that arise because of the kind of the, the crucible and fire of the conflict between you. Something about that seems to have really created uh, a very different solution here than often happens in other places. And I know I said that was the last thing, but I think the other thing, which generally speaking is harder to accomplish in other places, but was really pivotal here, was a concept that we now kind of call project finance for permanence. And it had to do with bringing together commitments to fund a large conservation financing package, but not having the money flow or having the money kind of finally show up in our coffers until such time as a whole series of requirements were met. And that created, it was $120 million that was jointly funded between the provincial federal government and private funders who the environmentalists had pulled together. That concept of there's $120 million waiting and it can be expended on all of these great things, but the following things have to happen. We have to meet these requirements before that $120 million flows is a really great model for creating kind of like a way to compress a whole bunch of change and compress a whole bunch of, of decision making into a short period of time because it incentivizes it with money. And I recognize that that's not necessarily going to be a solution everywhere because it does also require um, governments and uh, regimes that are able to create certainty. Project Finance for Permanence does require guarantees around protected areas and the fact that areas are never going to kind of change again. Um, but it does really, really speed the process up. So those are, the, those are my big ones in terms of things that I think are important that really could help speed things up here. It could have helped speed things up here even more if we'd kind of been sophisticated enough to understand how to use them at the beginning and I think could be transferable to other places. It's incredible and heart enlivening what you and this initiative people have been able to do. And I know I am taking a lot of lessons away from it and I'm sure our listeners are too. So thank you, Jody, for your work, your life, and what you've dedicated yourself to. You are so welcome. It was really such a pleasure to talk about it. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please consider supporting us at forthewild.world. We need your help to keep these projects rolling along. The music you heard today was Through the Pine Forest from Magpie, Choosing Sides by Joanne Rand, who will be at the 40th anniversary concert of the Environmental Protection Information Center, or EPIC, on November 3rd in Redway, California. We also heard Devendra Banhart with Hey Mama Wolf. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our producer and editor, March Young, and our research director, Madison Mogulski. Yeah.